Welcome to episode 28 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. Joining us once again is Mr. Lex Pendragon from the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter groups. Welcome back, Lex. Thanks for having me back. Always like to talk to you. Oh yeah, it's always a good time. And this time we are talking about Spider-Man Blue. It's the six-issue miniseries scripted by Jeff Loeb and co-plotted by Loeb and Tim Sale, or Sale, I wish I knew how to pronounce his name correctly. It's spelled S-A-L-E. Tim Sale also did pencils and inks. It was covered by Steve Buzzolato, lettered by Wes Abbott and Richard Starkings. The editor was Bronwyn Taggart, editor-in-chief Joe Casada. Cover dates ranging from July 2002 to April 2003, with release dates ranging from May 8, 2002 to February 5, 2003. The first five issues came out like clockwork, and then issue six was delayed by several months. And as we already said, it was number 28 in the countdown. Okay, so with all the technical details out of the way, we should get into the story itself. So a lot of people might know Loeb and Sale for their collaborations they did with both Marvel and DC. So DC, they did you know, Superman for all seasons with four extra size issues based on the four seasons of the year, your winter, spring, summer, fall. They did a number of these other collections for other characters. The option they went with with Marvel was the color-themed collections, often going back to a point in the character's history and filling in gaps that would fit in between the published issues. So Hulk Gray fits within the first few issues of the Hulk. Daredevil Yellow fits within the first few issues of the Yellow when he's still in the Yellow costume. With Hulk, the Gray part was because he was still gray-skinned at the time that that miniseries took place. It was before he became green. With Spider-Man Blue, it's not a literal period when Spider-Man was associated with the color blue. This appears to be more of the emotion, I would say. Would you agree with that? Definitely. I haven't actually gotten around to reading the Daredevil or the Hulk, and uh, Captain America White, at the time of recording this, is just now coming out, so I'm in the middle of those as I'm reading it. And I had, was under the impression they were all based off just an emotional emotional spectrum, almost. The blue in this specifically is referring to Peter Parker sitting down and remembering Gwen Stacy and their time together. So it's actually not sure where in chronology it would have to be, but he's going back over his early issues, but it's him in the future remembering the early issues. So, like, the entire thing takes place as a flashback. Yeah, so the framing story, so to speak, mm -hmm. could have been happening right at the time of publication. Exactly. In terms of the chronology, I'm also not entirely sure about exactly when this takes place. I haven't gone back and reviewed it. But it is after the death of Gwen Stacy. Spoilers for podcast number one. It's after Peter and Mary Jane get together, even in terms of the flashbacks. So the, the sequence he's flashing back to is right around the time that Flash Thompson chose to enlist. That is one of the events depicted here. So those of you who are really specific and picky about how things fit in with that, well, there's a good landmark for you. I'm pretty sure we can get Dr. Spidey and Comic Fiend from Twitter to give us those exact answers at some point. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it wouldn't take long. Or... Even Wikipedia, oh, it's yeah. not jumping up at me. So this is one that's not on the list because of some big significance to continuity. Like a lot of the stories that are sort of flashbacks and sort of dancing between the raindrops, as they say, it's not breaking new ground because it's really hard to make a big impact on continuity and not break the original story. Mm -hmm. It's not impossible if you look at the history that Dan Slott created for Silk as a character. 
right? It goes back to Amazing Fantasy 15, but there's a legitimate reason for the events that take place there to not have an impact on any of the issues until she's reintroduced or introduced for the first time in mm-hmm. Dan Slott's run. Yeah, this one isn't like that. It's, it is just fleshing out some of those stories. In effect, it's almost rewriting it for today's audiences that you know, expect longer story arcs from their comics than we saw in the 70s. It was also kind of a nice way to take a lot of the stories that, because I have gone back and read like Amazing Spider-Man number one through 10, I think is what I got through before something distracted me and I haven't gotten back to it. But each of those stories almost comes across as a one shot. You get, you know, in this episode, he fights the vulture in this episode. He goes and he fights, you know, whoever he's in this one with. With Spider-Man Blue, he narrates it and he narrates it in such a way where you see it from Peter Parker's perspective where he's just going about his life and all of a sudden the vulture's, you know, now he's got to deal with the vulture who showed up. And he deals with the vulture as best he can while he's really focusing on his life and most cases directly with Gwen Stacy. And then he'll take care of the vulture and then the next thing, which would have been the next issue, happens to crop up. But this kind of flows more based off Peter Parker's personal life than it does, you know, the villain of the week who happened to be in that issue. Yeah. This reads more like the the modern Joss Whedon, which I wonder mm-hmm. if it's Joss Whedon learning from Stan Lee reading Amazing Spider-Man as a child. Those early issues of Amazing Spider-Man, as people would have heard in a podcast that has been recorded but not released at the time Lex and I recording, although it will have been released by the time you hear this one. I, I look at those early issues of Amazing Spider-Man by Lee and Ditko, and I see a lot of the same structure in the early seasons of Buffy, where you definitely have a villain of the week, and sometimes have long-term storylines bubbling in the background. but it's really his personal life with the ever-changing status quo that marches on that tells you this is the order the issues must be read in. Mm-hmm. And this is returning to that. We usually talk about why things landed on the countdown at the end, but here when we talk about the significance, I think that's it. There's no impact on plot or continuity that we haven't seen elsewhere. I think it probably also helped a lot because judging from the current audience, or going by the current audience of comic book readers, most of them... If they're reading now, the bulk of people were probably born after Gwen Stacy had already died. And for that, for them to understand what Gwen Stacy had meant to Spider-Man, they weren't going to sit down and read week after week or month after month the issues as they came out and actually get that feel for the relationship the two of them had. They may have gone back and gotten some old issues and picked up enough to see what significance the two of them had. But to actually get the feeling across that, you know, Peter Parker had loved this woman and lost her. You needed to tie it all together, and this does that. This brings all of what Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy had and shows it to you rather than, oh, yeah, I remember there was this Gwen Stacy. Now, I mean, granted, yeah. a lot of the audience probably had read it at the time as well, but for newer readers or anybody reading from, you know, anybody younger than, let's see, Gwen Stacy would have been mid-70s? Yeah, or early 70s. when Early 70s. Yeah, when they they were saying around the time this was published that the average comic reader was 38 years old. So right. um, the average comic reader would have been born around the time Gwen Stacy died. Certainly wouldn't be reading yet. Not unless they're, right. you know, baby Stewie or something like that. <laughs> but regardless, they wouldn't have that context of what Gwen Stacy had meant to Peter Parker. And this kind of packages it all up nicely and gives it to you. It does. Because even for myself, I went back and when I first read The Death of Gwen Stacy, I was just reading Amazing Spider-Man in order from Amazing 15 up after having become familiar with the more recent Spider-Man. So mm-hmm. I knew Mary Jane as his love interest more than I knew Gwen Stacy. 
So reading is like, oh, he ended up with Gwen Stacy first. I It's almost like I didn't let myself invest as much in the Peter and Gwen mm-hmm. relationship because I knew Mary Jane was right there and I knew what Mary Jane would be in the long term, even though that clearly hadn't been written yet. Right? The thought right. of Peter marrying MJ, that was a thought on nobody's mind for over a exactly. decade after Gwen Stacy died. And we, we've had other, and I believe we've already, have you already done the House of M podcast where we get a peek at what Peter Parker's fondest wish was, and we end up saying that it would have been to have Gwen Stacy not die. Yeah, House of M is two weeks away. Two weeks away. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that one's number 26. Won't go into detail about that, but it does play a role in there, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that is largely what this is, and it is, it's just the emotional story. This is a character mm-hmm. piece. So even the major plot points in this, it's a new perspective on plot points that we've seen with the one exception that, whereas before we see just villain after villain throwing themselves at Spider-Man or Peter Parker because he was the central character. At that time, if the camera followed anyone else for an extended period of time, it generally wasn't the villain. It might have been J. Jonah Jameson or Aunt May or one of the, the major supporting cast. Whereas here we find out that a lot of these attacks were actually orchestrated by Craven the Hunter, who was essentially softening Spider-Man up to go after him himself, mm-hmm. and learning his prey before doing the hunt, by throwing inferior characters after him. This goes back to the transition of the Vulture from the elderly Adrian Toomes to the young and virile Blackie Drago. So we see that Blackie Drago got the Vulture costume through a little more subversion and with a little more guidance than we originally knew as well as, you know, reintroductions of the Rhino and a lot of the classic villains that Spider-Man had at the time. It was just a run where he was seeing classic villain after classic villain after classic villain, but it was really the personal life. You know, moving in with Harry Osborn is represented in this story. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of major continuity landmarks where people who are a lot more passionate about Amazing Spider-Man than I have, or perhaps just read them more spaced out than sitting down and reading 15 or 20 issues at a time where the numbers tend to blend together. Mm-hmm. can tell you, yeah, these are the issues that are covered in our span. I'm sure the complete Marvel reading order, which also hosts the Avengers Inspiration podcast by John M. Wilson and others, would be able to pin down exactly where each flashback has or takes place right down to the page and panel number, if you'd like to do that. But that's that's what it is in terms of the impact this had on the industry. You know, It didn't have a major impact in terms of putting new things out. This was another in a series of successful miniseries. And if anything, it was convincing Marvel that, you know what, doing the miniseries, not just for major events, but a miniseries for the sake of doing a miniseries because it's a good story that just doesn't belong in an ongoing, is a worthwhile proposal. Mm-hmm. We probably, I can't put anything behind this, but I wouldn't be surprised if this also gave rise to a lot more of the uh, the OGNs, where you can say, well, this is a good story for the character, let's just put it together and put it out here. Like now I know Marvel is publishing a couple more recent ones. Yeah, like the Infinity series and whatnot, the season yeah. ones. The season ones. Uh, this is. I wouldn't be surprised if this led directly to some of the seasons ones, because that's kind of how they seem to have done a lot of it. But I was also thinking of the like uh, family business for the Amazing Spider-Man and uh, Rage of Ultron that came out for the Avengers recently. Yeah, it's at, at least one of the the early entries in a shift mm-hmm. towards those those quality miniseries. Right. Because I mean. I was reading in the 90s, and I remember miniseries, but the miniseries I had as a kid were your four-part movie adaptations, or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Transformers wasn't really intended to be a four-part miniseries, which is why the final issue has number 80 in a four-part limited series splattered across the top. 
<laughs> from there, you've got your Infinity Gauntlets and Infinity Wars, which were conceived as six issues from the start because that's the event that all the summer sales and crossovers are going to be wrapped around. Mm-hmm. But unless it was part of an event, like the interstitial titles in X-Men Age of Apocalypse that we'll be talking about in a few weeks' time, with your Factors X and things like that, a lot of those stories, you know, if they were limited series, it's because it's the movie adaptation or it's part of an event. Otherwise, Marvel didn't seem to, to believe it was worthwhile to put something out there just for a few months and then take it away for the sake of taking it away. Not unless it was driving sales. But I think coming out of the bankruptcy in the early 2000s, they were a little more desperate and willing to just throw a few more things at the wall to see what stuck and give it a shot. And part of the Joe Kassara era as editor-in-chief was, yeah, let's take chances. It, his attitude doesn't seem to be like the attitude you see from a lot of Hollywood execs these days. Like, no, let's not take a risk on unknown quantities. Let's only do the tried and true stuff, which is why we're seeing so many reboots and relaunches and sequels and franchise adaptations from successful works in other media. Whereas Joe Quesada seems to be the, well, nobody's ever done it before is not a good excuse not to do it. It's a good reason to do it. Let's do exactly. something they haven't done. And if it doesn't go, it doesn't go. We learn from it and we move on. And plus, I mean, they can always put it back which is something yeah. we've seen in the comics plenty of times. They've killed Captain America, and then Captain America comes back and gets his shield back. Okay, well, I guess it didn't work so well with Bucky. Well, let's try it again with somebody else next time. Well, yeah, we've even seen one of the classic reset buttons in the Clone Saga that we talked about earlier, another Spider-Man there story, we where we get a change in editor-in-chief, and that month it's, whoa, 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 wait a minute, that thing that I said before? No, no, forget that. I'm saying this now instead. <laughs> exactly. But no, with this, they didn't have to do that. It was just tell a high-quality story and try not to contradict what's already been published. And if it doesn't take off, it doesn't take off. There's nothing to reset because it takes the reader on an emotional ride. And as Lex says, it adds emotional context to Spider-Man's history for the newer readers. But if you never read this miniseries, you're not going to read a, a Spider-Man comic where they talk about events that you don't recognize because they took place in this miniseries that you haven't read. Exactly. So... You're getting into our personal stories. Lex, how did you first get exposed to this particular story? Well, honestly, um, the first place I had heard of this was uh, on Twitter. People who listen to your podcast may be familiar with a ongoing fun diversion we have called Drunk Pete, where on su- Saturday nights, a bunch of us get together. We pick a Spider-Man comic that either we've read or haven't read or just whatever we felt like was appropriate for this particular week. And we'll all sit down, have a drink. Doesn't have to be alcoholic, but that is how it got started. And we just, as we're reading the comic, we live tweet whatever we're reading and our thoughts as we're going. And it's usually quite funny because we're usually drinking. And that's become our standard Saturday night thing for me and a bunch of other people. This one was one we picked out and read for Drunk Pete. And I had never even heard of it before that day. And that's just because I think around uh, early 2000s, I was too busy with Whatever else was going on in my life, I had fallen completely out of comics and hadn't, when I got back into it, it's not one that came up because like you said, nothing ever references it saying, Oh yeah, you remember when, you know, Pete was talking about Gwen Stacy that one time and you don't need to go back and find it to find out what was going on. So the story is just one that adds a lot of, a lot to the story, but it isn't necessary at all. So this was my first time reading it. I was completely entranced with it. I actually really enjoyed it. And it was all just because of that. I think I went back and read it a second time without the context of having a drink late on a Saturday night, just so I could actually get the full effect of the story. Okay. Yeah, my first exposure was actually also as a result of a podcast. It's actually the podcast that I believe inspired Horizon Labs. Marvel actually puts out a This Week in Marvel podcast, where they talk about 
what releases are coming out each week and so forth. And they're up to about 200 episodes now, a little over 200 at the time of this recording. Right around the early 80s, they started having this This Week in Marvel Unlimited Reading Club, where you could read stories together and tweet about them, and they'd talk about the tweets and what people were saying as part of a podcast, and all the issues were on Marvel Digital Unlimited. So that's when I originally read Spider-Man Blue, was when it came up in the context of that podcast. Mm -hmm. So again, it was something that just I'd heard about the high-quality reputation of the Loeb and Sale or Sally stories. The only one I had read up to that point was Daredevil Yellow, because it's me and it's Daredevil, therefore I have read it if it's humanly possible on my budget, which means I've read pretty much all of them. Pretty much all of it. <laughs> yeah. If I know it exists and it has Daredevil in the title, I have read it. Even when it wasn't Marvel's Daredevil. Yeah, I've read a good chunk of the Love Gleason Daredevils as well. So, yeah, that was my, my first exposure to that the Loeb and Sally group was that Daredevil Yellow. And I'm glad because I have kind of a hit and miss relationship with Jeff Loeb. If you listen to the Word Balloon podcast, you may have heard him describe how some stories are action-oriented and some stories are character-oriented. And, you know, John Suntris, being the, the good interview and host, asked if he could elaborate on which stories were which. And he started listing all the things he'd written. And every time Jeff Loeb sits down saying, this is going to be an action piece, I've read the solicits in the previous magazine, said, that's going to, that sounds great, pick it up, and not enjoyed it, just not been satisfied by it. Every single time he said this is going to be a character piece, I've kind of waffled on the solicits, but really enjoyed the final product when I had it in my hand. And Daredevil Yellow was my first exposure to Jeff Loeb, and it was one of those character pieces that's very well done. And going through the rest of his... Now I try to hold off until I can hear from Jeff Loeb in one of his interviews, whether it's a character piece or an action piece. Because to me, that's the perfect barometer for that I'm going to enjoy Jeff Loeb. If he says it's a character piece, I'm in. Because that's when you get your you know, these color series like Spider-Man Blues or the first arc of Ultimate Comics X mm. or his first arc on the new Nova series. His action-oriented pieces are more like Ultimatum, Ultimates 3, his relaunch of the Hulk with Red Hulk. They're stories that I did not enjoy the way I expected to enjoy them when I read the solicitations text. Your mileage may vary, but as I said, I'm happy I read Daredevil Yellow first because without that, I don't know if I'd have given Spider-Man Blue a shot before it showed up on this list for the podcast. Well, I definitely think it's worth a shot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if all of the, the Loeb and Sale or Sally color series are of the quality of Spider-Man Blue and Daredevil Yellow, it's well worth tracking down. Hulk Gray mm -hmm. is on my to-read list as soon as I'm through this podcast and have the time to read comics for the sake of reading comics again. That should be... You're, gonna, you're not going to know what to do with yourself when you get to that point. Oh, I have lists. <laughs> I've got all the reading projects that went on hold. <laughs> so, all right. One of the first times I was reading this, I had turned around and I had relayed a lot of this to my wife. And my wife doesn't read comics. She doesn't enjoy the medium. It's too busy for her to pick out the pictures and read the story. And she gets kind of lost between the two. So she doesn't enjoy it that way. But she enjoys the subject material. Anytime Marvel puts out a movie, she's into it. So she's very familiar with the storylines. As we were reading this, I was talking to her about it, what was going on. Because like, I, like we said, it's a very emotional piece. And it kind of had hit me. And... In the story, Peter Parker is married to Mary Jane, and he finds a recorder of his Uncle Ben's, just so you have, can tie him in there. And he starts recording a posthumous letter to Gwen Stacy, just a, you know, hey, I miss you kind of letter. And I told my wife what was going on. She's like, well, that's kind of horrible. Peter Parker is married to this one woman, and he's still pining over this lost love that he can't have. 
And it spawned this long discussion between the two of us and pretty much came to the conclusion that Peter Parker is just a real jerk to Mary Jane. She needs to move on and find somebody better. Frankly, that was my big issue with the story as well, is the way he was saying it when he thought it was in private. It helps a bit that Gwen and Mary Jane, they were less adversarial and more friendly than they're depicted Mm -hmm. in the flashbacks here. So I think that's part of why it sets it up. If they'd cut Mm -hmm. down the adversarial end of the relationship, I think it would have helped accept that to show that they were friends. Because in the end, MJ misses Gwen too. Right. They do kind of put a nice little bow on it at the end with Gwen saying, hey, tell her hi from me too. Yeah, it shows that Mary Jane is an amazing and understanding wife. Like She uh, hears this, she understands what's going on. There's no judgment. There's no criticism. It's, hey, say hi for me. And if you go back through the history, Peter and Mary Jane didn't even start to get together until the death of Gwen Stacy as well. MJ was the shallow and flighty party girl up until basically Peter's morning. And he makes a comment along those lines to Mary Jane to basically push her away. And she gets up and she's about to leave, pauses, closes the door while still inside and comes back to Peter. Mm-hmm. And then it's in the next issue where she starts to open up and they add depth to her. And she becomes a character who actually could be wife material for for Peter Parker in Spider-Man. And we see that. But yeah, MJ is amazing in this. Peter is not. No. And I don't think that's just in this. I mean, we're not going to deny that Peter Parker's a good guy. I mean, that's the whole reason we read the comic is because he's very well written as far as caring about people. But at the same time, he's a little bit of a jerk, especially when it comes to his friends. He's not very good at putting them before everything else. No. Although, to be fair to Peter, most of the time he's putting something ahead of his friends. It's because he's got to gear up as Spider-Man and save lives. So. Oh, granted. I mean, it's usually, you know, all of the Earth versus, you know, making dinner with Aunt May. But at the same time, Aunt May is still sitting at home with a roast. Yeah. That's part of, I think, why the MJ relationship works for me is because... Not even in a retcon, she knew he was Spider-Man before they really became seriously involved. Mm -hmm. They were getting closer and closer, but Peter was keeping her at arm's length because it was his role as Spider-Man that ended up killing Gwen Stacy. Mm -hmm. But then MJ says, you know what? I know you're Spider-Man. And that's part of what it is. She understands why he disappears, claiming he's just doing it to take photos for the Bugle to make a buck, when she knows, no, he's, he's the guy in the suit risking his neck. So when he disappeared, she understood and covered, which is... It's an element Peter didn't choose to share with anyone except possibly Black Hat. I haven't read enough of Spectacular to know. I know she's aware of his of who he is under the mask. I don't remember if that's because he told her or if she found out, because I haven't read that issue. But for the other love interests, he has never volunteered the information while I've been there. MJ just figured it out. Mm-hmm. Which also did a lot to show that she wasn't the, you know, the airheaded party girl that she'd been depicted at for so much of her life. Right. But at the same time, she deserved to be treated better. <laughs> she did. And Pete's, Pete's a great guy, but she needed a better guy. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a running theme. Like I said, she understands, mm-hmm. but there's just too many cases, I think, where Peter disappears and comes back and says, sorry, I ran off, but I knew you'd understand. Whereas, you know, when he's swinging 18 blocks away, he's supposed to be meeting her for dinner, go swinging. If he's got time to set up his camera for the bugle, he's got time to fire off a text saying, Rhino's on a rampage. Sorry, babe. See you later. Exactly. Make sure you record that show we were going to watch. We'll <laughs> pick it up afterwards while I'm nursing <laughs> Yeah, nursing a few wounds. That's really the only thing that I found interfered with my enjoyment of the story. Had they set it up, even so it wasn't a flashback, and it wasn't him recording this for Gwen Stacy, had they just told the flashback as, yeah, this is the way it happened, and we see that, I think that would have, that alone, alone would have made a big difference. Yeah, but at the same time, I do think that is part of Peter's character. I mean, it's... It, they're not the 
best couple in the world, but they're not supposed to be. They're not written to be. They're written to be the couple that got together because his true love died. And I think this helps illustrate that. That's even why they they broke up until one day he was lonely and bored and figured something wrong with his life. And, oh, I know, I'll get married. I'll go propose to MJ, even though we broke up months ago and haven't actually resolved the issues that led to the breakup. Shows up at her door, proposes, she says yes. Boom, next issue, they're getting married in the annual. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it worked in the newspaper strip. Yeah, well, the newspaper strip, they never broke up in the first place. So they kind of built to it and had the happily ever after, because Stanley was still writing it, and Stanley is romantic at heart. But, yeah, in the comics... Those who have listened to that episode of the podcast, which came out right around Valentine's Day, specifically episode 68 that came out on February 18th, 2015, you've heard my girlfriend and I talk about what kind of a shotgun relationship this was <laughs> and how flawed and doomed the marriage was from day one. Okay, well, it's all right. It never happened now. This is true. She can go try her hand, high-ended Iron Man this time. All right, so I think now it's time for the part of the podcast where we get into the deeper meanings. This is the portion I've stolen directly from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that we should all be listening to. And I know we've been light on the plot synopsis, but it really is a summary of the, of the previous issues. And that's trying to summarize this. We've talked about the framing story where he finds the recorder. It was actually on, I believe it was Valentine's Day, which was also his anniversary with Gwen. And that's part of the reason she was top of mind. And then he just retells, you know, how much he loved her and how he ended up falling in love with MJ. That's the framing story and the actual details. You can just go back to the original runs, right from Stan Lee and Steve Ditko to Lee and Romita, because we see his first meeting with MJ from issue 41 or 42, right through beyond the death of Gwen Stacy. So the spans from, what, about the mid-60s to the mid to late 70s? Mm-hmm. It is a pretty broad overview, so there's not a lot of point going through the rest of the plot, because that's not what this is about. This would be about the deeper meanings, and I think we've already alluded to that. Because that's the message I got from this. You know, I see why Peter was torn between these women when he first met them and they came into his life. The way it's written, I could see why you know, he would have fallen for either one of them. Although we do see the elements that pushed him more in Gwen's direction than MJ's at the time. And even he acknowledges that, yeah, if it wasn't for the death of Gwen and the impact that had on Mary Jane, Mary Jane would not have been the woman that he eventually fell in love with. It was part of the loss of Gwen Stacy that pushed her in that direction. But that's... That's it. I mean, every Spider-Man story seems to have an element of with great power must also come great responsibility. But yeah, aside from that, the only other messages I see are how Peter has been treating the women in his life. And those are not necessarily good messages. Yeah, I think it's not, I don't even necessarily think we can refer to them as deeper meetings, as in they're the real reason you're reading the story. But it's also the meetings are, you know, this is what relationships can look like. Because we get to look at Peter and Gwen, and then we also get to look at Peter and MJ, and we get to see what's good and what's not. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't know if you can call that a moral when it's saying, hey, by the way, here's a bad example. But at the same time, I mean, you can see what's there, and you can be like, oh, I'm not sure that one works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really, if anything, you know, the only subtlety is that, you know, if you just read it to enjoy it, you'll read it to enjoy it, it's going to pass over you. If you start thinking about it a little bit, it really reads like Loeb and Sale or Sale just seem to believe that Gwen Stacy was the real love of Peter's life. And MJ was, you know, the convenient and acceptable alternate. Consolation prize almost. Yeah. And she is fantastic to him, but mm-hmm. he's he's not fantastic to her. Yep. So, did you have any other thoughts about any other? No, I, I think that's pretty much sums the book up. I did also really like the art. At first, I didn't think I was going to just because it's almost a more flat kind of style than I'm 
typically enjoy. But there's a lot of really good beats in there where they draw things. And I, one of my favorites I remember is just the very bottom corner of a page where I think MJ ha, or MJ has, it might have been their first meeting or something, but she walks up to him. She flirts with Peter Parker in a very obvious, hey, by the way, I'm taking you out kind of way. I think she gives him a kiss or something and just walks off. And you see Peter Parker, who is about to say something to her, just like lost and looking off to the side, like what just happened? And I just remember it was one panel that managed to capture all of this into one single frame. So yeah. the art was very good for being what I was thinking was a little more simple than I was expecting. It's a great example of line economy. Mm-hmm. You don't get incredibly detailed panels. Even the choice of color palette, they're not using a lot of color gradations to show depth. It really does seem like two-dimensional images, mm-hmm. but all of the emotion is there. Yes. So and it, it's a very interesting marriage between the art. Because like I said, the colors are simplistic. You're not getting the Frank D'Armada, who's probably used more color gradations than anyone else I've seen in the industry right now. Mm-hmm. Right. He's got them everywhere because it really gives a, a feeling of depth and that these are solid objects. That's not the art we see here. There's you know, frequently one shade of red on the page, let alone, you know, maybe 12 that we'd see from other colorists. I mean, I do recognize that it was Steve Lucilato who did the coloring, but I've seen his work elsewhere, and he doesn't color everything in this fashion. So this has to be something that the team decided to do, mm-hmm. right? He had to be working in conjunction with Tim, again, Sailor Soleil. I really wish I knew how to pronounce that name. But it had to be, have been a conscious choice coming in from the start. And it worked out beautifully. It did. I also find because it's flashback, it kind of gives that unreal feeling, mm-hmm. which works really well because it's not being told as a contemporary story. It is being told as a flashback. And that lack of color depth, it does work because you know, at the time that this happened, it's well after midnight. So it's late. It's very dim. And for the most part, the flashback scenes are just black and blue. So again, you get that Spider-Man blue, that lamentable emotion that he's got. It's, it is shades of blue. So you get that separation in tone. You know, much like in Wizard of Oz, which a lot of people attribute to the 1939 live action, but actually they took from a 1927, I believe, animated adaptation where Kansas was all in browns and sepia tones and then Oz was in full color, right? To get that framing story on the rest with completely distinct looks. But it's the earliest I've seen where they actually have that, the shifting color palette mm-hmm. to specifically represent the two different locations. Yes. Or in this case, the two different time frames where the modern time is just this very deep blue. And then the past, you know, the happier times are much more vibrant. And yes. there is that shift all the way through. So when he's partying with friends, you get a lot of bright, vibrant colors. But when he's fighting your vultures or your rhinos or your cravens, the colors darken and they go more to the cool colors instead of the warm colors. So you get that shift in palette where, you know, Peter can enjoy being Spider-Man at times. I think that was well represented with the Stern and Romita Jr. run. But in this being Spider-Man was getting in the way of life. That's uh, you know a lot of the way you described it at first, where these villains are just showing up and he had to deal with it. That the color palettes alone, well, color palettes and the amount of sheer black that was being used, the amount of ink on the inking side. There's you know much heavier inks and whole regions of black during the fighting scenes that aren't there in the dialogue and the party scenes that, again, offset it and really speak to the emotions mm-hmm. and what Peter's mindset is of the different parts in his life. Yeah. So I think we've strongly alluded to it, but... What we have left now is why it landed at this point in the rankings. It's not because of continuity significance, because really there is none. Right. There's no first appearances. Well, none that we hadn't seen already. Yeah. It's the only part that wasn't a retelling was Peter and MJ in an attic with a recorder. And mm-hmm. MJ wasn't even there most of the time. 
Might be the first appearance of Uncle Ben's recording equipment, but that's probably about it. Yeah, so it, it's an entertaining story that emotionally speaks to the quality of both of the, the great loves of Peter's life. Mm-hmm. And it's also just really well done. Like you were saying, with the artwork, it pulls you in and draws the emotion to the right places at the right moments. Oh, yeah. It's an exceptionally well-made comic, which carries it a long way. Mm-hmm. And I I would say that a lot of that quality why it was made is why it landed on this list. And some of it is just, this is a part in Spider-Man's life that a lot of people can relate to and a lot of people are familiar with. I suspect that is what propelled Spider-Man Blue in particular onto the list while leaving Hulk Gray and Daredevil Yellow behind. Mm-hmm. Right. That's why this one stood out amongst those that they had put together up to this point. So, did you have any final thoughts? No, I just highly recommend it to anybody who hasn't actually gotten around to reading this one or doesn't know why Gwen Stacy is supposed to be so important. This is a great thing to just pick up and kind of give you a, almost crib notes of the entire timeline that it was takes part during. Yeah. Or references, I should say. It is. It's actually a pretty good executive summary of Peter Parker's entire college years. So we're looking at ballpark of issues, what, 30 to 150 here? Mm-hmm. All right. So Lex, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me again. Right. And uh, you've got a podcast of your own. So why don't you tell people where to find it? You can also find me with the uh, Geeked FM. That's geeked as in, if you were to geek in past tense, G-E-E-K-E-D dot F-M, where uh, me and my buddy Ron and my buddy Matt uh, record and do our pretty much our weekly sit down and chat about different things in parenting when you've got a couple of kids and you're a big geek and trying to pass that on to them. So for those reading along at home, next week we'll be discussing Spider-Man Maximum Carnage. So that's... Actually, one of the 90s crossovers. So specifically, it starts in Spider-Man Unlimited Issue 1, then continues through Web of Spider-Man Issues 101 to 103, Spider-Man Issue 35 to 37, Spectacular Spider-Man 201 to 203, and Amazing Spider-Man 378 to 380, before concluding in Spider-Man Unlimited Number 2. It has been reprinted in Spider-Man Maximum Carnage, the trade paperback. All but the Spider-Man Unlimited issues that start and end the story are on Marvel Digital Unlimited, so 12 of the 14 are there. But all 14 issues are available through Comixology as well. So that's 14 issues to read for next week, should you want to read along at home. In the meantime, please feel free to rate this and any other shows that you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher. It does help the podcast get noticed. This week we'll also see a new episode in the Comic Book Physics podcast series. If you want to check that one out, it'll be based on something that we discussed here today, or some part of the story at any rate. And finally, thank you for listening.